Those lyrics, they help us to sing about the glorious truth of what Christ has done for us, how it has changed our lives. Uh, These truths are what allow us to come to God in prayer, petitioning um, Him and asking Him to help us with our needs and our desires. And so let us go to the Lord in prayer with these requests. Father, we come this morning with many requests and needs. You are the one who can meet our needs. And you work in our lives to save us um, from both present and eternal realities. And we thank you for that. We want to bring before you several of our missions partners um, who are taking the gospel wide to those who do not yet believe. Thank you so much for the desire that you have placed in them to do this work. We ask that you would be with Dylan and Hannah in their Bible translation work. We ask that you would sustain Hannah as she has struggled with off and on illness for several months now. Father, I know it is so physically and mentally draining for her to be well and then to be sick and back and forth. And for Dylan as well as he is seeking to care for her and for Isaiah. So, Father, please help the doctors to know what is causing this and for her to quickly heal. We also want to pray for the ISI team here at Wichita State. Help them as they reach out to the many international students who have come to WSU for school. Help them to know um, the students deeply and personally, to be their friend, and to engage them in spiritual conversations about who you are and what you have done to save them. I am so excited for what you will do this semester through this ministry. Specifically, I ask that you would open the eyes of the many South Asian students here to see the truth and for them to repent and believe in Jesus. Father, we also want to pray for those who are grieving the death of those they love. We ask that you would be with Keith Call as he grieves his sister's death and the Day family as they grieve Helen's death, and for David Schwarzendruber as he grieves his dad's death. Help them to have comfort in your word and the reality of the gospel. Father, we also ask that you would be with little Elise Hildebrand. Help her to continue to improve and to show progress after her heart procedure. We ask that you would sustain Josh and Bethany during this time that Elise is in the NICU. And Father, we want to pray for Jarvis Seaman. We ask that you would guard him um, from feelings of worthlessness and failure as he struggles with this back pain and is unable to move. God, help the doctors to know what is causing this pain and to have a solution for it. And God, I also ask that you would be with me this morning as I share your word to your people. Help me to communicate it faithfully and clearly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I've got a lot of questions for you this morning. Just so you know, we're going to look at, we're going to find some answers too, if you wanted to know, not just questions, but, um, but question number one, have you ever doubted that someone was able to do something? 
you looked at them and you looked at the task set before them and you thought to yourself, ain't no way that guy's going to be able to do that. I would, you, you wondered, were they going to be able to cut the mustard? I don't really know what that phrase means, um, but <laughs> it's, it's something, I mean, I think it has to do with like cutting down mustard plants because that is difficult. They're tall and big, but actually cutting mustard is very simple to do. <laughs> I cut it. Um, but I, I know that I have doubted people. I did this on Thursday night after I watched the first half of the Chiefs game. Wasn't looking very good for them to win. But they did, so it was good. I also did it last Monday when my family and I went to the Kansas State Fair. Uh, The fair is great. We always have a fantastic time when we go. There's certain things that we do along the way. One of those is we go to the Pride of Kansas building um, to get our typical... Honey sticks, see how big the giant pumpkin is, and find out what was sculpted out of butter this particular year. But on the way to the Pride of Kansas building, we, we stopped. We were sucked in by the Flying Fools High Dive Show. Maybe you went to the State Fair, you were also sucked in by the Flying Fools. So to set the stage if you weren't there. There's this 10-foot deep pool that's been erected. It's a giant circle. Um, There are several spring diving boards that are up high above it. And then there's what looks to be a small radio tower stretching high into the sky there with a tiny platform at the very top of it. And so they tell us that at some point during the show, someone's going to jump off of this this tower. It's 80 feet in the air into the water. So when this point of the show came, I had my doubts that it was going to work out very well for this man who was climbing up the tower. Don't get me wrong, I'm not like this fatalist or anything. I actually I wanted him to succeed in this. But at the same time, I was also like ready to cringe and then shield my children so they wouldn't have to see what may or may not happen. What the man was about to do, it just seemed too crazy to accomplish, and I had my doubts that he was going to be able to do it. In addition to doubting that someone else can do something, we also doubt that we ourselves are able to complete a task. We wonder if our skills and abilities are enough to accomplish it. We wonder if we have adequate resources and time to get the job done. I know I did this last week as I was preparing for this sermon this morning. I wondered if I was smart enough to figure out what these three chapters were talking about. I struggled to know if I would be able to get it written and communicated effectively. I kept asking myself over and over and over again, am I getting this right? Am I focusing on the correct points of these chapters? And am I going to be able to get it across to you, God's people? Questions of doubt like these are throughout our passage this morning too. The characters, though they are not left to struggle in their doubt, the Lord provides answers to these questions for Israel and also for us today. So let's turn to the Bible. Will you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10, uh, verse 25, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be starting in chapter 10, verse 25, and we will read um, to chapter 11, verse 13. Then Samuel told the, rights, told, told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. 
And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people, that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And this next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Saul, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to divide our time this morning by looking at two um, specific questions. Uh, They are, how does God go about choosing a king? And then the next one is, how are God's people saved? The answers to these questions, they help us to know that God has not rejected his people who have rejected him. He is continuing to work in and through them, saving his people as he establishes the monarchy. So this first question, how does God go about choosing a king? So as we learned last week, there's this tension here, in the choosing of the king to lead Israel. The monarchy has been God's plan. It's not this new plan in response to Israel's actions in First Samuel chapter 8 when they rejected God as their king and asking for a king like the nations. God wanted Israel to have a king and to lead them well. This good leadership would be in accordance with God's law. When we learn, uh, we learn in Deuteronomy 17 that the king would actually have his own copy of the law written down and so that he would know it. The king would oversee the people, but was also under the authority of God, who is the king over all the earth. However, though, Israel didn't want a king like this. They wanted a king like the nations around them. 
They wanted to be like the nations instead of being like God's people and representing God to the nations around them. So God said that they would get the king that they wanted, and God would be the one who would choose that king. So as we look at how God chooses this king, I want you to keep um, in the back of your mind what Israel wanted. They wanted a king who would judge them like the nations, a king who will go out before them and fight their battles. So we're introduced to the new king in in chapter 9. This introduction to Saul, it begins by hearing about his family. There's a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a man of wealth. And Kish's son was Saul. And Saul was a handsome young man. Nobody in all of Israel was more handsome than Saul. I mean, like out of millions of people, he is the handsomest, most handsome. He's also taller than all of them, too. Saul is a physically impressive dude. I mean, I I think if if Saul were to walk into first free um, this morning, we would take notice. We would be like, do you see that guy over there? He's huge. I'd be like, you see that guy over there? He's handsome. (laughs) Heads would turn. People would talk. Saul would have the height of an NBA center. And the looks of, you could take your pick, Paul Newman, Brad Pitt, Hugh Jackman, maybe Miles Teller from Top Gun Maverick, you know, whichever one you seem to think is the handsomest, there's Saul. Saul's also described uh, similarly in chapter 10, uh, verses 23 and 24. Um, He was taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. There is none like him in all the people. God chose Saul because he fits the bill for what Israel wanted in their king. He's giving them what they asked for. A champion-type king who has physical presence and stature. A king who comes from a wealthy family, has some prestige, and draws the attention of a crowd. So to answer our question, how does God go about choosing a king? He gives the people what they desire. But Saul wasn't aspiring to be the king of Israel in these chapters. Um, He was a normal guy, doing normal farm tasks. Saul also didn't seem to have a spiritual care in the world. He almost seems to be oblivious to God as we see him moving through chapter 9. And so because of this, God providentially works to get Saul to the place that Saul needs to be. God providentially works in normal life events to choose his king. We see this in chapter 9. Verse 3 tells us about Kish's donkeys who are lost. Kish tells his son Saul to take a servant and go to look for them. This is a normal task for someone who has animals. I didn't actually know that, but I confirmed it with my farm friend, Keith Call. He told me, yes, that is a normal thing. Um, If you are a farmer with animals, you check on your animals every single day. You count them. If they aren't there, you go and look for the ones that are lost. It reminds me of my time with middle school students. (laughs) It's true, I I count them. One of them has gone to the bathroom for too long. We send someone out to pull back the one who is lost. (laughs) Doesn't take that long. So, but fences break, animals wander. Saul goes to look for them. They look for for the donkeys for three days. 
and they pass through all the land of Benjamin. And after this, Saul begins to get a little bit worried. He starts to think, my dad's going to stop caring about the donkeys. He's going to start caring about me. He's going to think we're lost too. We better call up the search and go back. But Saul's servant says that there's a man of God in the city that they're near and that all that he says comes true. So they think that the man of God is going to tell them where to go. Then Saul and the servant, they decide like, oh, now we don't, we don't have a present to give to the man of God because that's what you're supposed to do when you go talk to him. And so, but ironically, it's Saul's servant, not the son of a wealthy man who's able to scrounge up a, sh- a quarter of a shekel of silver, which is less than a dollar, mind you, to give to the man of God. So Saul and the servant, they come to the city, they meet some women who are coming out to draw water, and these women tell, Sam, tell them that Samuel is coming out of the city. They actually point him out for Saul, and Saul goes to him. And Samuel knows that Saul is coming, because the day before, God has revealed it to him. Samuel, God told Samuel that a man from Benjamin would come, and that Samuel should anoint him to be prince over Israel. And that Saul would save them from the hand of the Philistines. And so then when Samuel sees Saul, God told Samuel that this is the man. This is the guy that I told you about yesterday. The man who would restrain God's people. Saul had gone out to restrain rebellious and strayed donkeys, but he would end up being the one who will restrain God's rebellious people. The reason the donkeys went away was to bring Saul to Samuel. God providentially worked through these regular life events to bring him on this particular day when there was a feast and when Samuel would be there to bless the sacrifice. If the donkeys had been lost one day earlier or if Saul had decided to turn back sooner or if Saul's servant hadn't managed to scrounge up a quarter of a shekel of silver, Saul and Samuel would not have met. God is providentially working through these events to bring Saul here. And God is also providentially working in our lives for his purposes. He brings us to particular people and puts us in situations for reasons. Often we do not notice um, how this is working in the moment, but when we look back and reflect, we can see how God worked. I know that this happened when, uh, as, as the Lord brought me here to Wichita and to First Free. Before I moved, the, the day that I actually moved here was only the second time I'd ever been in Wichita, just so you know. Um, I, I grew up in Topeka, but now it seems weird. You're like, it's only two hours away, Lucas. Why don't you come here? Well, the reason for that is if you're in Topeka, you go to Kansas City. You don't come to Wichita. But anyways, so um, nothing against it. It's just there's no reason to. Um, but so when I, when I moved, it, I graduated from, from high school, went to K-State. And so the day that I moved into Goodnoe Hall um, at K-State, my little brother um, wandered across the room, uh, across the hallway, um, into my soon-to-be friend Jared's room. Later on that week, um, Jared invited me um, to go to church with him at New Hope Church in Manhattan. At New Hope, I met Jeremy Krause, who was a pastor there, and I, I served with him for four years. Um, in the student ministry. As I was getting ready to start my last year at K-State, Jeremy got a job here at First Free. At the end of my last year of college, Jeremy told me about this like potential job that might be happening here. Uh, A position was opening, and the reason for that is because Pastor Jordan Cron was going to seminary um, at Trinity. 
And so I could keep going and probably add a lot more details to this timeline. But one thing is for sure, God's providence was involved in bringing me here to First Free. He worked through the tiny details of my brother walking across the hallway to start this process. I would encourage you to spend some time reflecting on how God has faithfully and providentially worked in your life in specific events. Not like hunting for these like hidden clues or anything, but just looking back on it. Maybe this was bringing people into your life as you went through a difficult time. Maybe it was when God provided a job for you or a car when you greatly needed it. Or maybe it was God working to direct your life away from sinful decisions because he knew of where they would lead you. When you do this, I'd encourage you to share it with a friend or with someone in your community group and praise the Lord for this work. And so the last way that God chooses a king is through his spoken and confirmed word. We see this in um, chapter 9, 27 to 10, 16. It's the day after the feast, and Samuel is going to send Saul back home. Saul's servant is sent on ahead, and Samuel takes um, Saul aside privately um, and makes the word of God known to him. Samuel then takes a flask of oil and pours it over Saul's head, anointing him. The role of the king is one where you are set apart for God's purposes. Samuel says that Saul will reign over the people of the Lord and save them from their enemies. And these words are then backed up by three confirmation signs. He says that at Rebekah's tomb, Saul will be told by two men that the donkeys that he's been looking for all this time have been found. Then at the Oaks of Tabor, three men who are going up to God at Bethel to worship him will give Saul two loaves of bread. And finally, at Gibeah Elohim, there will be prophets coming down and prophesying. And when this happens, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon Saul, and he will prophesy with the prophets. Samuel's words, the word of God, they come to pass. All three of these things happen. God chooses his king through his powerful word, and God's powerful word comes true. Saul could trust in it in the same way that Samuel trusted in it. And we can trust in it in the same way too. The Bible is God's word to his people today and it is true. So if you've been at first free for a while or if you have come to the closer look class, um, you have probably heard about the means of grace. God has provided us with grace and mercy um, through the gospel, but God continues to give us ways or means of ministering um, grace as we make disciples, allowing the gospel to grow deep in God's people. And one of these means of grace is the word does the work. Disciples growing in grace will through the word and disciples grow in grace through the word and spirit. The word does the work of God in the people of God by the spirit of God. And so do you trust in God's powerful word and the work that it is doing and will do? How are you trusting in it? And conversely, how are you doubting it will work? Do you believe it is what you need for salvation and to live a godly life? Or are you trusting in something else to save you? I know that there are many people here in this room, middle school and high school students. You have questions and you have doubts about the Bible. It's not a bad thing to have these questions. It's actually normal to have questions about, is this really true? 
you're wondering. And so if you have these, I would encourage you to ask someone here in this church to help you find the answers. And if you are not the person who asks these questions, I would ask that you be ready when a person comes to you with a question and that you would respond by helping them find the answer to that question. So now I want to turn to our, our attention to the second question. How are God's people saved? So Saul was anointed. Um, he heard God's words um, through Samuel, and he experienced powerful signs, but he still doubted that he would be able to save Israel from their enemies and be the king of God's people. This first doubt is expressed in chapter 9, verse 21, when Saul says to Samuel, Why, why have you spoken to me in this way? Do you know who I am? You sure you got the right guy? This doubt is shown even more in chapter 10 when Samuel gathers the people together at Mizpah. He addresses the people, telling them that they have rejected God as their king by saying, set a king over us. And so the process um, for God choosing the king is by casting lots. So if you don't know what casting lots is, it's, that's okay. Um, it's very similar to drawing names out of a hat or um, drawing straws to see who goes first. Saul is there with the people. And I can imagine it, it's like working out kind of like this. The names of the 12 tribes are, are put in to the hat. The tribe of Benjamin is drawn out. Saul hears this, he sees this. He starts to get a little bit nervous. He knows what Samuel has said to him. But he's not quite sure if this is all going to work out. Then his clan, the Matrites, is drawn out. At this point, Saul starts to take a few steps back, distance himself from the crowd a little bit, move off to the edge some. The casting of lots continues until it is worked down to Saul, the son of Kish, and now the people begin to search for him. It's kind of like the scene in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, when the teacher is repeatedly saying, Bueller, Bueller, as he's taking attendance in the class, but Ferris is nowhere to be found because he has skipped school that day. Saul is also nowhere to be found. The people are going around, they're looking for him, they're like, Saul, Saul, where are you at? Can't find him. They go back to the Lord, God says he's hidden himself with the baggage. Have you ever seen a tall person try to hide? <laughs> doesn't work very well. The bigger the person is, the harder it is for them to hide. I experienced this with my kids when we play hide-and-seek in the house. Weston, Cora, and Avalyn are better at hiding than I am. They're smaller than me. They could be less conspicuous. And so, But I'm not even a very tall person. Saul, however, is the tallest of the tall, and he's hiding among some bags. You're picturing this in, this, in your head, this huge dude crouching behind some suitcases. It's not, not going to work very well. But the reason he did this is because he doubted that he would be able to do what the king would need to do. The king would be the one who would save Israel from their surrounding enemies. Saul didn't understand how God saves his people. Um, he will grow in his understanding, though. And there are clues of this along the way in our passage. Saul looks like the king, but he doesn't act like the king. He needs the Lord's help to act like the king should act, and God does this. This help comes through the Spirit of God. 
The first time this happens is in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. The Spirit rushes upon Saul, and this is what allows him to prophesy. And this is also a confirmation that God is with him. God's words to Saul have been confirmed by God's Spirit acting upon Saul. The Spirit did more, though, than just allow him to prophesy. He turned him into a new man. Verse 9 in chapter 10 says that God gave Saul another heart. God is working so that Saul can be the king. God is equipping him and changing him to be the king who will save God's people from their enemies. God also touches the hearts of some men of valor at the proclamation um, at the end of ceremony at the end of chapter 10. And these men, they go with Saul afterwards. God is changing hearts in this passage. But even with God's word being confirmed by God's spirit and the proclamation of him being king, Saul still doubts. Saul is acting more like a judge at the end of this ceremony than like a king. Samuel sends the people away, and Saul also um, goes back to his home at Gibeah. The judges in the book of Judges, they live normal lives until the Spirit of God empowered them for a specific task. They would accomplish the task, and then they would go back home until they were called upon again. That was fine for them. That's how they were supposed to work. But Saul's not a judge. He's a king. Saul comes to better understand his kingship role in chapter 11 as he leads Israel to defeat Nahash and the Ammonites. The people of Jabesh-Gilead, they're in a dire situation here. They're surrounded, and the only way for them to escape with their lives is to surrender and have their right eyes gouged out as well. It's bad. It's a lose-lose situation. They need help. And so they send out help, and the message comes to Saul at Gibeah. And when he hears this, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and his anger is greatly kindled. This makes me think of Dude Perfect videos. Hopefully this illustration connects with you better than first service. Um, so in these Dude Perfect videos on YouTube, um, there's these stereotypes. And always in the stereotype videos, Tyler becomes the rage monster, okay, in this stuff. The, he, he, he's, his, Tyler's anger is greatly kindled. That's what it makes me think about As Saul's anger is greatly kindled. It's like Tyler becoming this rage monster. Saul's rightfully angry about this. And the Spirit of God, it moves him to action. He takes oxen, he cuts them in pieces, and he sends them throughout Israel, saying, whoever does not come out after Samuel and Saul, so shall it be done to his oxen. It's with this that the dread of the Lord, not the dread of Saul, comes upon the people. Israel comes out as one man. They're united. It's like the scene in the movie Braveheart when an army forms around William Wallace, coming from all over Scotland, people coming down from the highlands, in the hundreds and in the thousands. Israel heard the call and they came as one united group to fight against the Ammonites. This unity hasn't happened since the time of Joshua when they were conquering the promised land. And Israel attacks Nahash and his army and they beat him like a drum. It's a total rout. Saul leads the people to an incredible victory and saves Israel from their enemies. He's acting like the king um, that Israel wanted in chapter 8, but he's also acting like the king that God wanted him to be. 
You see this following, the victory. Um, the people tell Samuel that, who are those dudes who said, is Saul going to be the king over us? Bring them out here so we, so we can kill them. Saul, however, tells them that no man shall die today because it is the Lord who has worked salvation for Israel. Saul confessed that God is the one who saved Israel, not himself. God used Saul and equipped him for this work, but it is God who deserves the credit for the victory. Human kings cannot save God's people on their own. They need God's power to save them. They are a vassal king who is under the power and the authority of the true king, God. And so that's the long answer to how are God's people, how does God save his people um, in, in 1 Samuel 9 to 11. The short answer, though, to that question is by God. God's people are saved by God himself. God did not reject Israel even though they had rejected him. He continued to be faithful to his covenant with them, showing them mercy and grace when they didn't deserve it. God's mercy and grace is extended to those who do not deserve it today as well. We are, like Israel, we are all like Israel at one point in our life. We had rejected God as our king and we were living for ourselves. We may have done this unknowingly um, when we were younger, or maybe we did it knowingly when we were older, making a conscious decision to reject the Lord. When someone rebels against a king, they're usually punished in one way or another. But the king that we have rebelled against is not like some earthly king. He is the king of kings. He's the ultimate king. He's the king that created all things. He's the king that created you. He's the king that sustains all of life. And so the punishment that when you rebel against a king like that is even greater. The punishment that we deserve for this rebellion is death. But God chose to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a non-rebellious and perfect life and died in our place. And if we believe this and confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved from our sins. This is the best news because it deals with our biggest problem. God did not leave us in our rejection, but continued to work to save us. And this salvation comes through the powerful working of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit gave Saul another heart and turned him into another man. And the Holy Spirit does this for people today. It's foreshadowed in Ezekiel chapter 36. It says this, and, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus also says in John 3 that you must be born again to be in the kingdom of God. We are born again through the power of the spirit. When a person or an animal is born, they're a new creation. And so it makes sense if a person is born again, they are also a new creation. This second birth happens when we believe the gospel, when the Holy Spirit changes our heart of stone to a heart of flesh, making us a new person. And so has this happened to you? Have you believed that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? Is he the Lord of your life? And if you have believed this, praise the Lord. But if you have yet to believe this, 
you are still in rebellion against God. And I would ask that you would come to him seeking his mercy and his forgiveness because God is the one who saves his people. But God often works through his people to save the people who are not yet his people. God equips us through the power of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with others, calling them to turn from their sinful ways and turn to God instead. So when was the last time you clearly shared the gospel with someone? Telling them that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when you did this, do you call them to respond to the truth? If you've done this recently, I would ask that you tell some about it. I want to hear it. I want to hear it both if it was a total success and they repented of their sins, but I also want to know about it if it was a Like, man, that was a total failure and it didn't work at all. Both of those encourage me and it encourages others to be active in doing faithful evangelism. We also see that God works through his people to save his people. God used Saul to save Israel. Israel was temporarily saved from their enemies in chapter 11, and we will see that there are more enemies to come as you keep reading 1 Samuel. God's people today face challenges and difficulties, but he uses people to help them through it. We need each other. Christ has gifted each member of the body to build up the body in love. And so if you have believed the gospel, you have been gifted with spiritual gifts to build up and encourage the body of Christ, the church. And so are you doing this? When you see a need in the body, are you Do you seek out ways to meet that need? Some examples of this are the the need to teach the word faithfully, the need to disciple new believers, the need to take people to doctor appointments or care for them financially. And some of you may hear those words and you're like, I'm not really doing those things. But I want to encourage you from my vantage point and when I hear how this church is working, I do hear you doing those things. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not here at the church and I hear how you, the people of God, are actively caring for the needs of the people of God. Bringing them meals, praying for them, encouraging them, sitting with them, helping them. Those things encourage me to do the same thing. I want to thank you so much for the way that the Holy Spirit that you are working um, to help care for the people of God through the power of the Spirit. And so to close this morning, I want to review the answers to our questions. How does God go about choosing a king? He does this through his providential actions and through his spoken and confirmed word. And then how are God's people saved? They're saved by God himself. God is the one who works salvation for Israel, and he continues to work salvation for people today. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for how you have worked in this little details of our lives to bring us to where we are now. God, I ask that you would help us to respond with understanding and belief and obedience to your word this week in the same way 
that Saul did as he acknowledges you as the one who's saved. God, help us to remember that you are the one who works out our salvation and for us to not look to anything else but to you alone in these things. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.